Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. In today's episode of History of Ideas, David discusses the life and thought of Frantz Fanon, author of The Wretched of the Earth, a searing critique of Western colonialism. It is a deliberately shocking book designed to change the world. Did it succeed? Talking Politics, History of Ideas is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading literary magazine. After each episode, continue your exploration of the history of ideas in their unrivaled archive of essays and reviews, films and podcasts, and find out more about how a subscription to the LRB can be an indispensable home learning and student resource by heading over to their website, lrb.me forward slash ideas. That's lrb.me forward slash ideas ideas. In these talks, I'm very aware that I've just been giving not only one story about the modern state, but one side of that story. I've been focusing on writers who themselves focus on what goes on inside states, what it's like to inhabit them, what it's like to be a citizen or a subject of a modern sovereign power what goes on inside the citizen's head, what goes on inside the citizen's heart, what it's like to be inside the head of a political leader. And I've been focusing on forms of breakdown that are internal to the state, revolutions and civil wars. And the reason that's only one side of the story is because, of course, a large part of modern politics is what happens outside of states, that is, between them, in the relations between sovereign states, what academics now tend to call international relations. And many of the crises that I've referred to in these talks were themselves crises not of civil war and revolution, though that sometimes came in their wake, but of international relations. The First World War was a breakdown of relationships between states before it became a breakdown of some relationships within states. And Hobbes can feed into that other story too. In fact, When I was talking about Hayek, I said people don't use Hobbes as a kind of stick to hit other people with, to be called a Hobbist, or as we would now say, a Hobbesian isn't really a term of abuse in politics, as even Hayekian is. But it is a term, if not of abuse, at least a way of labelling people in international relations, that is, in the theory of what it is that goes on between states. Because when someone today is called a Hobbesian, What that means is that they have a view of international relations, which is close to the way Hobbes described the state of nature. They make an assumption that Hobbes' argument, particularly in Leviathan, which tells you how to construct a state, stops there and assumes that when states relate to each other, you're back in the state of nature, because there are only two possibilities, so the argument goes. Either states have to replicate what individuals do to create states, that is, states have to create a super state, a world state, to stop them fighting each other, or they're just going to carry on fighting each other. And I think that's wrong. I think that is not what Hobbes thought. I don't think that's how he imagined international relations going. Hobbesian in contemporary academic speak kind of means anarchic. It kind of means there are no rules in the international order. 
But I think if you look at Hobbes's argument, there's a basic assumption there that that misses. The reason the state of nature is so anarchic is because we are natural. That is, we are naturally vulnerable human beings. We are unfortunately quite easy to kill. In the state of nature, none of us is safe because all of us are vulnerable to attack by someone who may be weaker than us, but can still get us. But states are not natural. That's the whole point. States are artificial persons. They are giant robots. And they're much, much harder to kill. And because they're much harder to kill, it's at least possible, on Hobbes's account, that they can lead very different sorts of lives from the lives individuals might lead in the state of nature. States could conceivably get on with each other. They could even conceivably abide by the laws of nature. They could seek peace because they know of each other when they're well constructed, that the other states are as hard to kill as they are. There isn't necessarily in the international order that mutual vulnerability that there is in the natural world. And so I think it's possible that Hobbes believed that his state, if it really got going, would bring a kind of world peace. Even though he's probably wrong about that, that doesn't mean it's right to assume that he was the political philosopher of anarchic international politics. So that's one story I haven't told, but there's another, and that's the one I'm going to talk about today. Not just what states do or don't do to each other, but what states do or don't do to the inhabitants who live outside of their borders, whom they acquire, maybe when they conquer or take over a territory, and to whom they do not give the status of citizens. The experience of empire and colony. Again, there is a Hobbesian version of this. Hobbes, among the many jobs that he did for the aristocratic family that looked after him, was to manage their business affairs. And they were early shareholders in the Virginia Company, one of the first enterprises that sought to, as we would now say, colonize what we would now call America. And Hobbes went to shareholders' meetings and tried to take part in arguments that have some connection to the fundamental arguments that have always accompanied the enterprise of empire. How do you control the people who are doing the controlling overseas? You send your colonists over to Virginia, you call it Virginia, you claim some kind of authority over them, but they are an ocean away, and you have no idea what they're doing, and you have no reliable means of communicating with them. Do you trust them? Do you let them effectively assume sovereign power over the people that they are now trying to deal with? Or do you try and control them? Do you try and rein them in? And that question for the British state did become an acute problem in relation to these kinds of companies. The biggest one of all, the East India Company, that became the earliest vehicle of British imperialism, was a corporation. And ultimately, it did become too powerful. It did become too state-like. And the state had to put it back in its place. All of the writers that I've talked about had some consciousness of the problems of imperialism and very different perspectives on it. Marx thought that imperialism was the outcrop of capitalism. It's where capitalism led. And certainly the people who followed Marx, above all Lenin, 
believed that imperialism was in some sense the highest form of capitalism, that is, the last form. Because as Marx said, capitalists always have to look for new markets to conquer. Empires are ways of conquering new markets on which you can dump your unsold goods on people who have no choice but to consume them. But if you're a Marxist, you believe that cannot continue forever. At some point, you will run out of places to conquer. You will run out of people to exploit. And then the revolution will come. But even for staunch critics of empire like Marx, the experience was still understood from the perspective of the imperialists. Gandhi, in my story, is of course the exception. Gandhi tells us what it looks like from the experience of the colonised, what it is to be on the receiving end of this form of state power. And the person I'm going to talk about today, Franz Fanon, shares that perspective. His is not the point of view of most of the people I've been talking about, what it looks like from the empire out. It's what it looks like to be on the other end, to be on the receiving end. And yet Fanon was, in many respects, nothing like Gandhi. And he took part of his inspiration from Marx. Fanon offered a kind of Marxist critique of imperial politics, but he went much further. He went much further in two respects. First of all, unlike Marx, he lived it. So like Gandhi, he was writing from lived experience what it was like to be on the receiving end. Marx didn't know in that sense. He had to make it up. But Fanon went further than Marx in another respect too. For Marx, empire and the use of the state to colonise and to conquer markets was an extension of the basic function of the state, which was to prop up capitalism. And the fundamental exploitation that lay at the heart of modern politics was the exploitation of workers by capitalists. The exploitation of the colonised by capitalists was an extension of that primary exploitation. Fanon put it the other way around. For Fanon, the primary exploitation, the fundamental basis of modern politics is revealed through empire. Empire shows you the true nature of the modern state in its rawest form, pure coercion, pure violence, stripped away from all the cant about freedom and rights and representation. What Marx thought the workers could see, Fanon thought only really the colonised could see, because the workers, by the time Fanon was writing in the early 1960s, he thought had become comprehensively confused about what was really going on. Europe had not gone the way that Marx foresaw. The revolution had not happened. The only people who still understood that at its heart, The state is nothing but coercive power dressed up to be something that it's not. We're the victims of imperialism. Fanon's lived experience of it came in a variety of different forms. He was born in the French colony of Martinique and he grew up at a time where to live there was to experience a kind of double imperial oppression. So Martinique was part of the French state and was treated as a colony and exploited as a colony. And then the French state in 1940 was itself colonised by the Nazi state. With the French defeat in 1940 and the establishment of the puppet Vichy regime, 
France itself became an extension of another state's power and was treated not quite with the brutality that France treated some of its colonies, but not far off. So to be in Martinique from 1940 through to the point where Fanon left to join the Free French Forces and to fight against Nazi oppression was to experience the double brutality of being brutalised by people who were themselves being brutalised. So for Fanon, there were no illusions. In that experience, there was no way of dressing it up in the language of liberty or rights or justice. This was just coercion. When Fanon went to fight for France, he discovered that the French were racist even when they were on the other side from the Nazis. And his experience in part taught him that the French did not want to be liberated by their colonies any more than they wanted to liberate their colonies. After the war, Fanon went to study in France and he trained to be a doctor. He's the first doctor, real doctor, that I've talked about in this series. He became a psychiatrist. And as a psychiatrist, he went to another branch of the French Empire, Algeria. And he was in Algeria during its wars of independence of the 1950s. And that's what he wrote about in the book I'm talking about today, The Wretched of the Earth, which was published in French in 1961 and translated into English in 1963. Fanon experienced that war in part working in a hospital as a psychiatrist. It was an extraordinarily violent war. And Fanon's experiences of it were of violence. And in The Wretched of the Earth, quite a large part of that book is devoted to his study of the psychological effects of living in these circumstances of brutality, what it is to live with a kind of unconcealed violence that nonetheless still is pretending to be something that it's not. When I talked about Weber, I talked about Weber's view that modern politics can send modern politicians mad because they're grappling with the doubleness of violence. Their tool is the modern state, an instrument of violence, and yet they're seeking to do it for something more than just violence. And Weber says, unless you're very careful, that will send you mad. Fanon writes about not just politicians, but everyone potentially being sent mad by trying to live that lie. That is, the people who experience the colonial oppression of the French state as its perpetrators, as people who are trying to negotiate with it, as people who are trying to wriggle out from under it, as people who are trying to compromise with it, as people who are trying to work out what to do with it. Anyone could be sent mad by this level of violence that cannot reveal itself for what it is. The only people who will not be sent mad by it are the people who can have no doubts about what it is. The population of colonised states who are not trying to compromise, who are not trying to strike a deal, who are not trying to find their way within this regime, who are just on the receiving end. And Fanon says the difference between that experience and the experience of workers in Europe, as Marx understood them, is that if you live in a colonised society, none of the dressing up of power as something that it's not will even be attempted in your case. So Fanon says of modern Europe 
The colonial world, he writes, is a world cut in two. The dividing line, the frontiers, are shown by barracks and police stations. In the colonies, it is the policeman and the soldier who are the official, instituted go-betweens, the spokesman of the settler and his rule of oppression. In the capitalist countries, a multitude of moral teachers, counsellors and bewilderers separate the exploited from those in power. In the colonial countries, on the contrary, the policeman and the soldier, by their immediate presence and their frequent and direct action, maintain contact with the native and advise him by means of rifle butts and napalm. The bewilderers, as Fanon calls them, of modern Europe include the democratic politicians, the people who claim to speak on behalf of the workers to improve their lives, to improve their lots, all the compromises that Marx warned against. And it also includes literal teachers. There was a sense in which to grow up within a modern European state was to be subjected to a kind of relentless propaganda regime that tried to teach you that this wasn't a lie, that rights and justice and freedom could be yours if only you behaved yourself. But Fanon thought no one could believe that lie who'd experienced colonial rule in its purest, rawest form. The mediators, as he calls them, the intermediaries, the go-betweens, are the police and the soldiers. And the police and the soldiers are not in the business of negotiation, and their instruments are not lessons and speeches and election campaigns and newspaper articles. It's rifle butts and napalm. And the other thing that Fanon believes that the colonial experience does is it collapses the line that is said to exist within modern European states between the public and the private sphere. The line that the soldiers and the police are not meant to cross unless they have very, very good, exceptional reasons. If you are living in a colonised society, the violence comes into your home. And Fanon says that the experience can't leave you with any illusions about their being rights and protection against violence when you retreat into the private sphere. Because when you retreat into the private sphere, the violence will follow you and it will come into your home. And as he says, it will come into your mind. And if it comes into your mind, then there's no escape from it. And if there's no escape from it, then you can't believe that it's anything other than what it is. So the force of Fanon's argument was that there is only one group of people who are completely unillusioned about colonial power, and that's the people who are on the receiving end of it. But it's also the case by implication that everyone else is trapped, even the people who are doling it out, the police, the soldiers, even they who in some sense know that all they are doing is coercion, are leading a kind of lie. And there's a version of this in one of the most famous pieces of writing about the colonial experience from the other end, from the other side of the rifle, the holder of the rifle, rather than the person at whom it's pointed. It's one of the greatest critics of imperialism from within the Western tradition, from within an imperial state, is George Orwell. And George Orwell also made his case on the basis of lived experience. He knew what he was talking about because he had been an imperial policeman 
In his case, it was the first real job he had. And he did it in Burma, what used to be called Burma, now Myanmar. He was a member of the Burmese Imperial Police representing the British state in its colony. And he wrote about it in various forms, but including in two celebrated essays, two of the most celebrated essays in English in the 20th century, one called A Hanging and one called Shooting an Elephant. And in both, in incredibly few words, he tries to capture just how that experience revealed to him the limits of the autonomy, the limits of the choice of the servant of the imperial state. In a hanging, he leads a man to the gallows. In shooting an elephant, he shoots an elephant, but he doesn't want to shoot the elephant. And he describes the process by which, when he has the gun in his hand, he feels he has no choice. He wrote, I perceived in this moment that when the white man turns tyrant, it is his own freedom that he destroys. He becomes a sort of hollow, posing dummy, the conventionalised figure of a Saib, for it is the condition of his rule that he shall spend his life in trying to impress the natives. And so in every crisis, he has got to do what the natives expect of him. He wears a mask and his face grows to fit it. So the difference between the person holding the rifle and the people on the other end is that the person holding a rifle wears a mask. Eventually, that mask becomes who he is. There is no way of removing it, but it's still a mask. You are completely trapped in the lie. The lie is the only reality that you know. There's no escape from it, but it's still a kind of lie. The reason that Orwell shoots the elephant, as he says, to come all that way, rifle in hand, with 2,000 people marching at my heels, and then to trail feebly away, having done nothing. No, that was impossible. The crowd would laugh at me, and my whole life, every white man's life in the East, was one long struggle not to be laughed at. So Orwell can tell a kind of truth about the imperial experience, but he can't tell the whole truth, or at least he can't live the whole truth, because all he can ever do as an imperial policeman is wear a mask to the point where he can't remove it. But Fanon was convinced that the people who were on the receiving end of that kind of brutal oppression were not wearing a mask. They were living a true life. It's just a life that had been entirely reduced to the experience of violence. So violence was their reality. And it was that knowledge, like for Marx, the knowledge of the proletariat, of the oppression under which they lived, which was their power. And it was that power that Fanon tried to harvest in The Wretched of the Earth. In the language that Fanon uses to talk about modern politics, he deliberately contrasts it with something that precedes it. He belongs to that tradition of critics of the modern state, in this case, the modern imperial state, who reject the idea that you can collapse two distinct things and make them into one. He rejects the doubleness of modern politics, the idea that it can be two things at once, hold them separate, but make them inseparable. He wants to get back to the thought that there is a real choice and that the choices that the modern state tries to get away from can't be escaped. So in this book, he talks about the Aristotelian logic of colonialism, 
By that, what he means is, this isn't a dialectical experience. This isn't two things at once. This is classic, pure logic. This is either or. There is a dividing line. You do not straddle that line. You are on one side of it, or you're on the other side of it. And any form of politics that tells you it's possible to be on both sides of the line is a lie. He calls the colonial experience Manichaean. That is, it is good versus evil. An idea drawn from theology, drawn from the pre-modern world. He calls the colonial experience bestial, meaning that it is something less than human to be treated in this way. So it's natural, it's pre-modern, it's either or. But he's not trying to argue that therefore to live in a colonised society is to live in some kind of primitive state. And he certainly doesn't think that this is the state of nature, that state that Hobbes thought could be transcended by the modern state. This is a quintessentially modern experience. Pre-modern language is needed to strip away the veil, to show it for what it really is. And Fanon was absolutely determined that people shouldn't think that any of the instruments of modern politics could remedy it. If it's either or, if it's good versus evil, if it's bestial, then the language of representation and the language of democratization should seem, as he thought they were, just window dressing. You can't democratize a bestial situation. You can't represent the fight, the struggle between good and evil in a way that elides the difference. You can't turn an either-or choice into a both and nothing just by allowing people to vote. So a lot of his anger in The Wretched of the Earth is directed against the people within colonised societies whom he thought were trying to straddle that line, the people who wanted to modernise them, modernise them on the modern European model, the people who wanted to work for or with the imperial regime in order to improve it, to represent the rights of the colonised to their oppressors. He was also deeply suspicious of all those people who wanted to intellectualise the experience. You might think that he was intellectualising the experience, but he didn't think that's what he was doing. Part of the reason that so much of the book describes the mental torment of the people who have to live like this is that he didn't think that he was, in that sense, an intellectual. He was just reporting on it. He was one of the people who was able to tell it like it was. He rejected compromise. He rejected representation. He rejected modernization. He celebrated what he called the backcountry people. And by that, he didn't mean people who were more backward than the people who lived in the towns. What he meant were the people whose experience of this wasn't compromised by education and intellectualization, whose experience of it was the pure one. But above all, and this is what's most shocking about Fanon's work, he embraced violence. Violence for Fanon was the tool of liberation. It was the thing that described the experience in a way that was true. To be on the receiving end of the violence of the rifle butts and the napalm let you know what was going on. To take violence to your side was the only means to counter it. 
Celebrating violence doesn't remove Fanon entirely from some of the European traditions that he claimed to scorn. There is within Marxist thought that came after Marx various kinds of celebrations of violence. Perhaps the most famous is a book published in 1909 by Georges Sorel, a French engineer, called Reflections on Violence, in which he makes a very similar kind of argument that Fanon does about the colonial experience to describe what it is to be a worker, to be a member of the proletariat in a modern European state. And like Fanon, Sorel argues that only the experience of violence can reveal the predicament of the worker for what it is. And for that reason, violence should be embraced. If you run away from violence, if you try and pretend it's something that it's not, if you try and dress it up as something that is tolerable and livable with, you're denying the only experience that lets you know who you really are. Sorel particularly enjoyed the violence that he saw unfolding in the United States within American society, the violence of an oppressive regime taking on strikers by shooting them. Sorel celebrated the idea of a general strike which would force the oppressors to reveal their hand. When strikers were confronted, Sorel said, by police and soldiers with guns, that's when you know your politics is working. So Sorel's argument foreshadows Fanon's argument, but Sorel's argument is the Marxist argument that says that this true experience is the experience of the workers. The general strike that Sorel wanted never happened. When Fanon picked up this line of thought and applied it to colonial regimes, it acquired a new life, a life of its own. So some of it came out of Paris in the early 20th century, died away, and then was revived in somewhere like Algeria in the 1950s. And then it made its way back to Paris. So by the time in 1968, in Paris, the students were on the streets again. Fanon, as well as Sorel, were being cited. The idea being that if you can force your oppressors to reveal their hand, you should celebrate the worst they can do to you. But this is nothing like Gandhi. This is not, and then you should embrace the violence, but not give it back. For Fanon, as for Sorel, the point is to give it back. Fanon believed that many of the answers to the problems of the modern world did lie in European thought, but that Europe was no longer a place where they could work, that the Europeans had squandered them. He wrote, All the elements of a solution to the great problems of humanity have, at different times, existed in European thought. But Europeans have not carried out in practice the mission which fell to them, which consisted of bringing their whole weight to bear violently on these elements of modifying their arrangements and their nature, of changing them, and finally of bringing the problems of mankind to an infinitely higher plane. Europeans did not, in the end, confront their problems violently. They just remained in the realm of thought. And the language that Fanon uses to characterise what's gone wrong in Europe is that Europe is stuck. It had these ideas, but it's been unable to liberate itself from the social and political structures that stifle the true expression of them. It's projected it outwardly through empire, but it's unable to project it inwardly. So that in the end, European politics has become what he calls motionless motion. It's stuck in what he calls the logic of equilibrium. 
all of which could describe one version of the modern state. The idea of the Hobbesian state that gets stuck is motionless motion. The doubleness of the modern state becomes paralyzing on this account. Each part of it locks onto the other. There is a logic of equilibrium, but nothing moves. Everything is fixed in place. Like Orwell says, the mask fits so that you can't remove it, but it's still a mask. That for Fanon was the fate of Europe and European politics, to have constructed a form of the political life that had once in it, including in its revolutionary forms, the potential for transformation. But it had got trapped by the bewilderers, by the educators, by the politicians, by the representatives, who could do nothing in the end except freeze it in place and then hand out to their functionaries in the empire the raw business of oppression. Fanon wanted something different. He thought it was possible that in Africa, not just in Algeria, but in the African continent as a whole, almost all of which had experienced the most brutal forms of imperial coercion, there was the possibility of a new kind of state. This state would be something which, as he says, treats its object as mankind as a whole. This state would be something which, as he says, reconsiders the question of cerebral reality and the cerebral mass of all humanity, this state would be one that could rehumanize the earth. So it's nothing if not ambitious, but he genuinely believed that the only hope for that kind of state was to come out of the kinds of experiences that were only known by the colonized of Africa. It's hard to know what words to use to describe that kind of political project. It is so beyond really anything that I've been talking about in this series, both in its ambition, but also in its willingness to embrace violence as the means. One word for it potentially is postmodern. This is the state that goes beyond the modern state. This is the state that transcends that doubleness, not through European dialectical thought, but through lived experience. Fanon genuinely, I think, believed in this possibility. Looked at now, from the 21st century, it does look, well, one word for it is wishful. That might be the polite word for it. The experience of the state in Africa, including of the many states that were created in the aftermath of liberation and independence movements, is not of a transcendence of Hobbesian politics. It's not of a getting away from the parochiality and the particularity of nation states to something like the cerebral fate of mankind. If anything, African politics, from the time that Fanon wrote, looks as trapped as anywhere in the dilemmas of the Hobbesian view of what politics is about, the fundamental questions that can't be avoided, and that the best hope often is to get away from the pre-modern either-or into something like the security of a functioning modern state. It's not the only hope, but most of the time, for most of the people who have experienced modern life, and that includes the experience in Africa, it does remain where politics is at. It's important to emphasise, and the word postmodern captures this, though it's often hard to know what else it's trying to say, that Fanon's conception of this kind of state does come after the modern state. 
because he was really aware, particularly for the kind of Western audience that his writing was going to attract, there was another temptation with celebrating the notion of an African conception of politics and an African idea of the state. There was a temptation among his Western audience to assume that he was advocating a kind of primitivism, that he wanted to go back. And he's equally scathing in the wretched of the earth about those Europeans who celebrate African culture because they think there's something pure and natural about it, and who celebrate the artefacts of the African world and display them and wear them and appropriate them because they think that's a way to get in touch with their roots. Even when he talks about the people who live outside of the cities in the countryside, the people who have not, in a sense, been corrupted by European politics, Fanon is never advocating a kind of going back to something primitive. He genuinely believes in the power of politics to transcend and go beyond. And one of the ironies of that story about France, that ideas of Sorel that left Paris and in a roundabout way, indirectly, not directly, found their way into Fanon's thought. And then Fanon's thought, in a roundabout way, found its way back to Paris in 1968 so that he could be celebrated, was that part of that celebration was the kind of thing that he would hate, the celebration of Africanness as a kind of purity. The purity of the African experience for Fanon was simply the purity of the experience of violence, the unmediated experience, as Fanon says, of the oppressors of a colonial state, the intermediary does not lighten the oppression, nor seek to hide the domination. You can't capture that by appropriating an African artefact. Hannah Arendt was one of the many people who were horrified by Fanon. She was horrified by what she saw as his celebration of violence, and she was horrified by what she called his naturalisation of violence. She saw violence as essentially destructive, and she contrasted it with what she called force. And force, she believed, was something that was capable of doing work in the world. Force was not action, but force could build things of lasting value. And it was possible in a well-constructed state to use the power of the state as a form of force which is creative and not as violence which can only be destructive. And by complaining about Fanon's naturalisation of violence, she was also by implication arguing that he reduced violence to the level of labour, that violence becomes repetitive, feeding off itself, relentless, cyclical. Arendt has almost nothing in common with Franz Fanon. And yet I think there is one thing that connects them. And it's one thing that makes them, in this story, one way of characterising its edges or its limits. Each of them was trying in very different ways to emphasise that modern politics is not the only way of doing politics. That there is something contingent about a story that starts with Hobbes. There's something contingent about a story that takes as its foundation the alliance between violence and security. And in completely different ways, they were trying to get outside and beyond that and to suggest that there were many different ways in which what Hobbes locked together, locked together in a way that so that he thought it couldn't be broken apart. There are many different ways of breaking it apart. 
And in some ways, however different these two writers are, they pose what is the fundamental question of modern politics, which is, is it contingent? Is it a mask that we can take off? Or has the mask grown to fit so that we can't take it off? That question about the modern state is more than just a question about the imperial experience. But if Fanon believed that only the imperial experience could really show that question for what it is, then who's to say he was wrong? To read The Wretched of the Earth and other pieces of writing about Fanon and his experiences, please go to our show notes or our website. Next week, in our penultimate episode, David talks about Catherine McKinnon and the power of patriarchy.